0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Torah Studies. It is a pleasure and an honor to have you join me tonight for some incredible mm. Torah study. We are going to explore our Torah portion, Mishpatim, and Sorry? You know about the parsha? Mishpatim? Alright, so we're gonna learn some more some more stuff tonight. We're gonna to explore today. Okay. We're gonna explore Mishpatim and hopefully walk away with just some deeper understanding of some Torah concepts and some relevant personal messages all coming up tonight at Torah Studies. Okay, so let me tell you a story. The story goes back, um, I want to say, about, hold on, let me think, let me think. It is not probably, I want to say like a a little under two years ago. And I got a call from Chabad.org. You know the website Chabad.org? The big uh, central mothership website? Okay. Chabad.org gives me a call um, and says, hey, we have these courses, these online courses, and we know that you do a lot of teaching, and we'd love for you to teach a course for Chabad.org. And I said, sure. What's the topic? They gave me a topic. And then they sent a film crew and they came to Chabad in town, to the new building. And we shot the four-part series in the shul and the synagogue. And they and they edited it and whatever. And they posted it. And it's now available on Chabad.org. And you can enjoy it. And honestly, uh, I hate to say this. I don't remember the, the name of the course that they gave it. I know what the topic was. But after we shot it, they gave a name to it. And they marketed it. And they branded it. Whatever it is. Um, but it's there. Ha- does anybody remember when that happened at the time about that course? Yes? No? If you don't, it's okay. It's it's all right. I- after all, I don't remember the name of the course that they called it. But the point is that when they shot it in the new synagogue space, um, so th- there was a like a-, a major part of 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 why it took so much time was not actually the teaching. Like each class was supposed to be, I think. 30 minutes per class. I wanted to keep it about 30 minutes, I think. Um, so each class is about 30 minutes. We did it in one take. Um, but it took like a few hours to do it. And, and you might know, you, might, you probably can guess, what took so long? What took so long in, in the whole operation? What do you think? What do you think? If the class only took me 30 minutes to teach, so what do you think took so much time? It, let's say the whole thing was like two hours, two and a half hours. What do you think took all the time? Jump in, jump in. Unmute yourself.
1: Setting up the video and the audio and all of the other equipment and running electricity because if you had just moved in, things were not finished out and you didn't have all the electrical and the lighting that you have now.
0: Well, good, good, good. So actually the electrical was up. The, the room was, was pretty much, we didn't have the lights as we have now, but the cameras and the mics and the lighting, that took a long time. But you know what else took a long time? What else took a long time was the props. Um, And when I say props, I mean kind of like the decor of how they wanted to set up the room. So it's not like, oh, step into the synagogue, you know, pull over in front of you know, the chairs and, or the whatever, the, the, the rows, and, and we'll shoot. No, 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 not so simple. They cleared it, and they put like, they took a lamp from the lobby and put it in on a table in the corner, and a chair at that angle, another chair at the other angle, in the background, when they soften it, you know, create a soft background. This whole thing about exactly where things should be positioned. It's an art. It's literally an art to design a space so that it looks appealing for the camera. And you can, you know, you go to Chabad.org, not now, you can do it later. Um, don't double dip with classes, it's, uh, it can be hazardous, no, I'm kidding. Um, staging, thank you, Donna. We call this staging in English, yes. So it's staging, and it, 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 was, uh, it was an art. It's about where things should be in proximity to other things. Like, relative to me, sitting in a chair, where should another chair where should a lamp? Where should a fern? Um, you know, whatever. Where should all this stuff be? That's part of the chachma of design. And I will tell you that the, the videographer and the other the other person that was there, the producer, they did a great job with all the stuff. It it really it's really it's it's a beautiful beautifully shot video. The content I think is also okay, but the video itself, like the quality and the look, is really gorgeous. Okay, why am I saying this? Because if in videography, if it's true that in videography proximity matters, what you put near something else is, is intentional and matters, and it's not random, it's not haphazard, it's by design, if that's true, in videography, if the Hevra that, that Chabad the Urk sent to Chabad in town a year and a half, two years ago, are so precise in what follows what and what goes next to the other, then you think that God had some precision when God wrote the Torah? I think so, right? If human beings are precise when we organize things, certainly God has organized the Torah with absolute precision. Which, as you might imagine, brings me to our conversation of this week's Torah portion. You see, last week, on Torah Studies, we spoke about the Torah portion of Yisro, And in Yisro, <coughs> in addition to Yisro, the father-in-law of Moses, joining the Jewish people in the desert, converting to Judaism, etc., in addition to that, last week, we read in the Torah portion about the Ten Commandments, the giving of the Torah at Sinai, divine revelation, that big moment that happened seven weeks after the Exodus in which God conveyed the instruction manual for life to the jewish people this is what happened in last week's torah portion and so what this week torah what this week's torah portion discusses especially the opening of this week's torah portion is highly significant let me explain the next the the torah portion that immediately follows the episode at sinai you would imagine, has significance. It's not like we just had Sinai, this incredible moment, this incredible gift, this incredible revelation, this incredible declaration, and now, yeah, we'll just, you know, whatever happens next happens next. No, everything is staged, to use the term that Donna um, uh, mentioned, everything is staged with absolute, immaculate, intentional, divine precision. And so the 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 narrative of our Torah portion, especially the opening narrative of our Torah portion, is not just the opening of this Torah portion, it is connected with last week's conversation. Is what I'm saying, does what I'm saying make sense? You understand what I'm saying? Yes? Juxtaposition. You will find, you will find commentaries. The Baal Turim is one of them. Baal Turim is a commentary that does a lot of numerology. But something else that he does is juxtapositions. He talks about why the connection between the, the last few words of one Torah portion and the first few words of, of the next Torah portion. He'll talk about how, you know, even though there are different Torah portions, you might say, oh, listen, one chapter closes and the next chapter begins. And, you know, different weeks, keep them separate. He says, no, 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 no. One leads to the next and one is informed by the next. And we're going to do a similar activity tonight or exercise tonight, and that is analyze the connection between last week's portion, specifically the episode at Sinai, and this week's Torah portion, the beginning of Mishpatim and its opening law. So, in order to do this, we need to look at how this Torah portion begins because we know what happened last week. Revelation, Ten Commandments, that we got. But how does this week's Torah portion open? I'm glad you asked. We're going to do this together. All right. I am sharing my screen with you because as you and I know and as Reva knows, sharing is sharing is what? Caring. Why are you whispering? Love you. Oh, you're eating. That's so good. Okay, good. Good, good. I'm glad you're whispering there. All right. Let's do this. Let's talk about the first mitzvah of this week's Torah portion. This is how Mishpatim opens up. Text Number one, Dr. Maxi, please get us started.
1: Should you buy a Hebrew slave, he must work for six years, and in the seventh year, he will be liberated without charge. But if the slave says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go free. His master will bring him before the judges and bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master will bore his ear with it all, and he will then serve him forever.
0: All right, thank you. There's a lot that needs to be unpacked from this reading. There's a lot that needs to be explored, including, of course, you okay? There you go. The juxtaposition that that we talked about before. But let's first deal with the verse itself, the the verses themselves. It's a series of verses here. So the Torah opens up, this week's Torah portion opens up um, with a mitzvah, with a discussion about slaves. And it talks about how if you have a slave, then the max amount of time that you can have a slave is for six years. After six years, the seventh year, which is an an objective seven-year cycle, so on that seven-year cycle, in the seventh year, the slave goes free. But if the slave chooses to remain a slave, the slave says, well, I actually don't want to go free. I like what I'm doing. I like working for this for this family or this person. So then the, the ear is um, is pierced, and that slave serves the master forever, which our sages tell us is not actually literally forever, but it means until Yovel, until the Jubilee year, which is the 50th year. So that's the opening... The opening mitzvah of our Torah portion, if if I had to summarize it, it would be the law of slaves in Judaism. One thing I need to mention uh, off the bat is when we hear the word slavery, so we have to be careful. It's not exactly the same idea of slavery as uh, as as you and I know it. Um, In the Jewish understanding, slavery is not exactly slavery. It's not that you can't harm or abuse or God forbid, injure a slave. It is, it is essentially um, a form of, I don't know, live-in service, but yeah. it, is not, um, it is not the same as, uh, as slavery. I just want to clarify that. Um, what does that say? Adina Malka is asking the question, can a female slave also go free? Yes, this, it would be the same. It's not gender exclusive. It would be the same for, for male and Hebrew, uh, for male and female slaves. So what's the point? The point is the Torah is talking about slaves and giving kind of a time limit, six years, yes, but seventh year, not. If the slave still chooses to be a slave, then it goes until 50 years. And, uh, and then in the 50th year, the slave is free. Again, it doesn't mean the 50th year from when the slave first becomes a slave. There's an objective 50-year cycle. So it could be that the slave went into service as a slave in year 40 of the cycle, which means it would only be another nine years or so until that 50th or 10, nine, 10 years until the 50th year Hit. Be that as it may, this is the opening mitzvah of our Torah portion. And I will tell you, I will tell you that um, if you find this mitzvah a little bit unusual or maybe um, a little bit uncomfortable, you're not alone. And the commentary is pointed out. And really that will serve as the foundation of our four questions. These are not the Passover four questions. We'll leave that for another time. That's coming up soon. Um, But I have four questions on this opening verse, or these opening verses, really the opening mitzvah of the Torah portion of Mishpatim. And again, to reiterate what I said before, the question, the questions that we're going to ask on these verses that we just read are magnified by the fact that this is the very first mitzvah of the portion that immediately follows the episode, the experience at Sinai. Now, Sinai was just a grand, spiritual, just incredible, breathtaking experience. You would think that the first Torah portion right after Sinai, the first mitzvah, you know, the first sit down, all right, folks, here's what we got. Here here are the laws. The first thing would be something inspiring, something, you know, I I don't know, something that's like, that lifts the spirits. What do we have instead? We have a discussion about slavery. This discussion about Jewish slaves seems very, very strange on multiple levels. What? It seems strange. On multiple means on many levels. And so I want to share with you. You're thumbs downing it, right. Well, not exactly thumbs downing, but but at least asking the question. So let's ask the question on four different levels, four different questions, and let's jump right in. Mm -hmm. Question number one. I think I'm gonna
2: get
0: it. Okay, question number one is, it seems like this topic would be highly triggering for the people that are being taught this mitzvah, right? It seems a bit insensitive. The first mitzvah after Sinai, I I feel like I need to elaborate on this once again. I know I gave an introduction about it, but I feel like I need to give one more piece of information. The Jews were slaves in Egypt. They were then freed by God, and they traveled through the desert for seven weeks, anticipating getting ready to receive the Torah at Sinai. They got the Torah at Sinai, and what's the first thing that's communicated after that? The first thing is laws about slaves. Could we think of another topic, perhaps? Like, why again with the slavery? It seems a bit insensitive. You have a bunch of people that had just gotten out of slavery, and now you're telling them about about slavery. It seems like, why go there Especially, why go there right after Sinai, which is such an uplifting, liberating experience? Why go back to a conversation about slavery? It seems, uh, frankly, insensitive, triggering. You know, they have trigger warnings now. It's trigger warning. We're going to talk about slavery. You're dealing with a bunch of slaves, a bunch of seven week post slavery former slaves. You talk about sla- the first thing has to be slavery. You can't. Smuggle it in somehow in the middle of the parasha, in the middle of the Torah portion. It has to be the opening shot. Yeah? After Sinai, the opening shot of Mishpatim, this Torah portion is, boom. Let's talk about slavery. Are you kidding me? What? That's, that's question number one. Question number two. Question number two is, in addition to it seeming to be insensitive, Moreover, this mitzvah is completely irrelevant. Let me explain why it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant because Jewish slavery was only a thing when somebody was so impoverished. I mentioned this, by the way, um, when we studied these, these verses at Daily Power Parsha on Monday, which, by the way, kan hamakim, now is the time and, and the place to plug... And give a bit of a, of a 30 second commercial for Daily Power Parsha. You can join any day of the week that you'd like, 12 p.m., 12 noon, Daily Power Parsha. We go through the daily Torah reading. It's a wonderful experience, and we have some of you that are here tonight join us regularly or semi regularly for that. And if you haven't yet, definitely jump in on that. It is awesome. Commercial closed, cut. All right, back to our regularly scheduled programming. No, it hasn't. So getting back getting back to our regular scheduled programming. So it seems, not it seems, slave, the, the mitzvahs regarding slavery, this discussion is completely irrelevant because slaves, as we discussed the Daily Paraparsha, Jewish slavery only happened when a person became so impoverished that the only way they could repay their loan, the only way they could get out of debt was to work in a very focused way, kind of basically full-time, in this context of slavery, that's the, only, that's the only context in which slavery was permitted was to pay off a, a, a pretty severe debt. And so the question is, why mention the laws of slavery at this time when we know that the Jewish people were very wealthy? Now, unmute yourself if you know the answer to this question. The question is, how did the Jewish people, having just been slaves, become very wealthy? New, jump in. How did they become wealthy? Help me out.
1: They took all the gold and silver and the things that Hashem commanded them to take with them out of Egypt from the Egyptians.
0: Exactly. Right right as the ninth and tenth plagues were going down, God tells Moses to tell the people, by the way, FYI, go around and start uh, borrowing clay <laughs> silver and gold objects. And borrow, you know, is used a little bit loosely. It's kind of borrowing with the intent of, you know, never really giving it back. It's kind of taking and it's considered to be on some level, it's considered to be on some level somewhat of a reparation, if you will, for the slavery. But the point is simple the point is that every Jew had dozens of wagon loads or donkey loads, in the, in the way that our sages put it, of wealth. And so the question is why the need to talk about slavery? There's no slavery. Who came on hard times in the desert? and needed to become a slave, though now we need to talk about the laws of slavery. Who was a slave? Who was impoverished? Every Jew had plenty of wealth, had plenty of money, right? Why do they need to talk about slavery? There's no context here. Let me explain further what I mean. When the Jews left Egypt, they took the gold and silver. In addition, in addition to taking the gold and silver, at the time of the splitting of the sea, the gold and diamonds and jewelry, the gemstones. Donna, the gemstones washed up on the shore after the, after the Egyptians drowned. All of the jewelry that the Egyptians were wearing, the bling, right? The necklaces, the bracelets, etc. It all washed up on shore and the Jews collected that as well. And they're in a desert and they have money. How are you blowing through money in seven weeks? Right after Sinai, what? The Jews are like, oh, man, I fell on hard times. I was like, I put all my money down on, uh, on, uh, on Patrick Mahomes. I mean, who's what, what what in what context? If you're not a football fan, don't worry. In what context? Don't worry, I didn't. In what context? You got to go with Brady. Kidding. In what context are they losing all their money? In what context are they impoverished now that, folks, just in case, here are the laws of slavery. In case you need to know, what is the context in which this is necessary to talk about? It's not necessary. Everyone, plenty of dough. Listen, listen. This is before Reddit and before Wall Street bets and before GameStop and before the, the stock market. This is before all of that stuff. So who was blowing all their cash, all their newfound cash, on a bad investment? Man, I invested in this cactus, and the next thing you know, boom, I lost everything. What kind of loss is happening? What kind of slavery is necessary? It doesn't make sense. The whole thing doesn't make sense. Now, if you want to see the sources that talk about the wealth of the Jews, let's take a look at the text as I will share them with you all because, of course, we love to read the text inside. Take a look at what it says in the book of Exodus. You know what? Adina Malka... Jump in on this, please. Don't forget to unmute. You know the drill. Text number two from from the Torah. This is straight up scripture.
2: And the children of Israel fulfilled Moses' instruction and borrowed from the Egyptians silver objects, golden objects, and garments. God gave the people favor in the eyes of the Egyptians and the Egyptians lent them And the Jews emptied out
0: Egypt. And Lent is, you know, eh, Lent, sort of Lent, gave, (laughs) whatever. Basically, the money, a lot of the wealth was transferred at that point to the Jews. They emptied out Egypt. And then I mentioned about the splitting of the sea and the gemstones. Take a look at text number three. Um, Who's next? Richard, please jump in, if you will, on text number three.
3: When the Jewish people left Egypt, Paro pursued them. Paro adorned his armies with diamonds and gems. When they reached the Red Sea and drowned, all the diamonds and gems rose to the surface and washed up on the shore. When they abandoned the days the Jews made their way to shore and collected the value.
0: And by the way, these diamonds and gems, we know where they are today. We have kits ready to go for Purim and Passover, And we're going to do a jewelry workshop. We have the originals. Join us, join Donna and myself February 22nd, March 22nd for these incredible workshops. Information on our website, intonjewishchamma.org. Second commercial. We are doing very well. Look, I talked about video production. The next thing you know, I'm rolling into uh, infomercials here. All right, so what happens? The Jews, in text 2, took the gold and silver out of Egypt. In text 3, it tells us that when the splitting of the sea happened, they emptied all the diamonds and jewelry and gems. The Jews had plenty of guilt, to the point that there's no need, there's no rational need, to even speak about the whole context of slavery. Again, I want to give you a context that I gave in DPP, that stands for Daily Paraparsha, Um, you know, that famous uh, scene in the movie where the fellow goes to the restaurant and orders a bunch of stuff and then can't pay for it for whatever reason. So what do they tell you to do if you can't pay for the food in the restaurant? Yeah, wash the dishes. So in a sense, that's what slavery is in in the Jewish context. Jewish slavery would mean. Somebody became impoverished and they can't pay back the debt Wash the dishes. That's, ins- that's essentially what it is. But that's only if a person has become impoverished. There's no other context. That makes it moral or legal in Jewish law. So who, where the, there's no poverty here. There was no poverty. So right after Sinai, you need to talk about Jew- the laws of Jewish slaves and how whether the debt's paid or not, they go free in the seventh year. Why are we talking about this? Who's impoverished? Who's going to become a slave? It's not an imminent need. There's no imminent need to talk about it. It's not an imminent conversation. It's not relevant. Are you with me in question number two? Okay, that's my second question. Two out of four. I'm going to recap the first two questions. Question one is, it's insensitive. It's a trigger. Why talk about slavery to a bunch of former slaves? Like, Talk about something else right after Sinai. Something uplifting. Number one. Number two, it's it's not relevant. It's not relevant. Question number three. You ready for this one? The hit, I mean, these questions keep on coming. Um, the next question is, number three is, not only is it insensitive, not only is it not relevant, it is superfluous. It is extra. Why do I say that? Because we have a tradition that you may or may not be familiar with. It's brought down in the Jerusalem Talmud. The Jerusalem Talmud says that when the Jews were still in Egypt, listen to this, when the Jews were still in Egypt before the Exodus, God had told Moses to tell the people about the Jewish perspective on slavery. I'm going to share this text with you, and we are going to read this inside together. This is the content of text number four. Um, Susan, would you like to read? Jump on in.
1: Rabbi Shmuel, the son of Rabbi Yitzhak said, which commandment does the passage refer to when it reads, and God spoke to Moses and Aaron and instructed them about the children of Israel. It was about the mitzvah to liberate their slaves.
0: Take a look at this. It's such a daring interpretation. The Jerusalem Talmud jumps in on this and says, When God speaks to Moses and Aaron, this is still in Egypt prior to the Exodus. And this is even prior to the, to the, to the plagues. This is before the plagues began. This is when God was first recruiting Moses and Aaron on the mission to speak to Pharaoh, let my people go. It says, before, before it went down. So it says that God commanded them about the children of Israel. What does that mean? God command, instructed them about... So the Talmud says, God gave them an instruction to give the Jewish people. And what was the instruction? About the mitzvah of liberating their own slaves. Now, that uh, we can ask questions on this piece of Talmud. But what comes out from this is that the Jewish people had already heard about the mitzvah. About liberating slaves in the seventh year, in the sabbatical year. They had already heard about this mitzvah already in Egypt. Why the need to reiterate it here, and especially why they need to do so, the first mitzvah right after the giving of the Torah at Sinai, after last week's Torah portion, the opening mitzvah has to be about liberating slaves. It's superfluous. It's unnecessary. Because we already got it, or the Jews already received that message already in Egypt. That's our third question. Again, question one is, it's insensitive to talk about slaves and slavery. Number two, it's irrelevant. No one needed to be, no, there was no need for anyone to deal with these laws because no one was impoverished. Question three is even for informational purposes, they already had this information prior. They were told this information already living in Egypt. And now we're going to ask our fourth question. Our fourth and final question is. Um, Is, is, is... Oh, there's one more text. You know, before we get to the fourth question, uh, let's do one more text. Text number five. This is from Jeremiah. This is from the book of Jeremiah. Take a look. Donna of Donna Jewelry. Please read text number five. uh, Jeremiah 34.
1: The word of God came to Jeremiah saying, So says the God of Israel, I made a covenant with your fathers on the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slaves, saying, Every man at the end of seven years, release your Jewish brother who has been sold to you. When he has served you for six years, give him his freedom.
0: Again, clearly, thank you. Again, clearly, we have a source that says that God already in Egypt, or, you know, on the day they left Egypt, already gave them that commandment about releasing slaves. And therefore, why is it relevant here in the beginning of this Torah portion, Right after the experience at Sinai, to reiterate this mitzvah, this this obligation to release slaves, it seems to be completely superfluous and unnecessary. That is question, again, question number three. That's just from uh, an additional source. And the last question we're going to ask is a question that we love to ask. And it's a question really that is universal whenever we study Torah. And that is, what's the message for us? You know, what is it, what's the teaching, what is the message that you and I can take and walk away with from this conversation, especially given that the conversation is about slavery, which we live in 2021, and slavery is not a thing that anyone thinks, I mean, hopefully not, right, is at all a good thing, at all a decent thing, at all a good idea moral justified at all it's not it's not it's none of the above it's not a good idea it's not moral it's not justified so it, it the whole conversation becomes a little bit like you know maybe we're just in general uncomfortable with this topic in 2021, reading it at all, let alone, you know, forget the juxtaposition, Just like, what does it mean, and and, and how do we understand it, and what's the message, what's the timeless message? If it's in Torah, it must have a timeless message for us, so what could there possibly be? What timeless message could there possibly be in a discussion about slavery um, in the Torah? Again, specifically given the fact that this is the first uh, um, mitzvah in the opening portion right after the experience at Sinai. All right, so these are the questions that we need to to explore. Um, question number one. I, I, at the core, it's one question. The question is, why, why are we discussing this mitzvah? The first part of the, the first way to ask it is it's insensitive. The second way is it's, um, it's unnecessary. They weren't slaves. The third point is, it's superfluous. it was already told to them. And the fourth point is What's the message? What's the timeless message? How do we understand this in 2021? So I will tell you right off the bat that although I'm asking these questions tonight in our class, I'm not the one to come up with these questions. These questions are, have been asked over the centuries, over the, the, the millennia. They've been asked by many, of, many scholars and biblical commentaries and, and, and rabbis. And there are many answers that have been given about, to these questions. Tonight, this is what we're gonna do. I had four questions. We're gonna have four answers. Three that come from classic traditional Jewish commentaries, and the fourth, which comes from the mystical teachings of Torah, as we'll see the the, the mystical, Kabbalistic, Hasidic Chabad, if you will, perspective on this question. So three classic answers, and then we're gonna bring a fourth. These answers will range from the historical to the emotional, to the psychological, and then ultimately to the spiritual. We're gonna go through all of them and understand them and see how each one adds another layer. You know, there's 70 facets facets to Torah study. We're gonna see four, at least four tonight, and hopefully walk away with not only an understanding of what this mitzvah was all about and why it's the opening of our Torah portion, but also what it means for us in 2021, living in a free country, um, what what, what the message is for us. And and I think you'll be blown away by the the deeper message. We're going to begin our answer phase with the commentary of Ramban, Nachmanides. Nachmanides offers a very interesting perspective. I'm going to share my screen with you. And um, actually, right before I do that, let me just give you a quick hakdam, a quick introduction to Nachmanides. Nachmanides is going to say, we're going to read it inside in a moment, in just a minute, but quickly. Nachmanides is going to, to focus on the fact that the emancipation of slaves that the Torah provides for at the beginning of our Torah portion, six years of work, in the seventh year there's freedom, that touches on... A central biblical theme of six days, of six being associated with work, and seven being associated with emancipation. Right, like six days we work, and the seventh day is a day of rest, Shabbat. So we find similar cycles of six and seven within the fabric of the universe, and a similar cycle also within the slave, slavery, this, this, the uh, slavery. Six, six years of work, and the seventh year is, is the slave goes free. And, and he says, this is why it's the opening of our Torah portion. It's because it's such a central theme, if you will, that it's it touches on the big ideas, as well as the Exodus, which we'll see in a moment. But that's that's the introduction. Let's see it now inside. Let's take a look at text number six, Nachmaneri's answer. Um, let's ask, let's see who's next. Ray, are you up to reading? All right, please unmute and Please retext number six for the benefit of us all. Tell me if you have a little uh, unmute. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, I think we can hear you. Yeah, that's exactly right.
2: All right. The Torah begins with a commandment concerning the Jewish slave because the slave's liberation in the seventh year is reminiscent of our liberation from Egypt mentioned in the first of the ten commandments. It is also reminiscent of creation as is the sabbath since the slave's seventh year was like a sabbath of sword. It is when he is free from serving his master. The slave has an additional liberation day in the jubilee the year that follows the seventh set of seven years. Because the seventh was selected by God to represent freedom in terms of days, years and the Jubilee. Thus, because of their distinction and because the laws of slavery parallel important themes of creation, they were chosen as the introductory misla.
0: So thank you. So um, Ramban, Achmanides is addressing our question, literally our question. Why is this the introductory the introductory mitzvah of Mishpatim, of this week's Torah portion? Right after Sinai, the, the next thing, we're talking about slaves. Why, why are we talking about... Like, who's thinking about slaves? So Ramban says, two points, two points. Number one, it's reminiscent of our liberation from Egypt, which is mentioned in the first of the Ten Commandments. If you recall... Commandment number one of the ten was, I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt. Right? God introduces himself as as the God that liberated the Jews from Egypt. So, right after the Ten Commandments, God says, I liberated you. You make sure to liberate your own slaves at least every seven years. Right? I liberated you. You liberate your slaves. That's one connection. And he says the second connection is, look, creation, God's role in creation is a central Jewish theme. And what is, what is uh, God's role in creation? How does God create? Six days of creation, seventh day of rest. We parallel that in the laws of slaves, six years of work. The seventh is the sabbatical, the Shabbat, a year in which That work comes to an end, and that term of slavery comes to an end. And thus, the the laws, the opening laws of our Torah portion that seem to be randomly talking about slavery, emancipating slaves, it's not so random. It touches on the theme of the first of the Ten Commandments, which is Exodus and liberation of slaves. And it also talks about creation and acknowledging God in creation, that we only work for six, but on the seventh, there is... A freedom and liberation. That's Ramban. Let me check in with you if you like that answer. Do you like it? Makes sense, sort of. Yeah? David's like, uh eh. listen, it makes sense, right? It makes sense. Essentially, he's saying it's not as I think there's yeah. I think there's better. Yeah, okay, good. Good. Listen, that's why we have four answers tonight. This is the first, the first of four. But it's a classic, it's important to know what classic commentaries are saying. And this is, Ramban is certainly, when you talk about classic Torah commentaries, I mean, he's a Rishon, he's a, an early biblical commentary, and this is what he offers. Okay, to be honest, I agree with David, because it, it, it we didn't really answer all of the questions, right? We didn't answer, um, if, you, if, if you look at all four questions, and I don't want to get drilled back into the questions, but it's not necessarily answering all four questions and maybe answer one of the questions or two of the questions, but it's not really addressing all of the points that we raised before. Nonetheless, this is Ramban's answer. Let's take a look at the next answer. The next answer we're going to share is from Ebenezer, or the Ibn Ezra. The Ibn Ezra, again, classic biblical commentary from medieval times, one of the Rishonim. Um, and this is what he writes Uh, let's ask, let's ask Adina Malka, did you read tonight? Yes? How short is my attention? How short is my memory? All right, let's ask Susan. Susan, please, if you will, unmute yourself and jump into the Ibn Ezra Tech 7, again, addressing our question.
1: There is nothing more difficult in the human experience than to be bonded to a fellow human. Therefore, the Torah begins with the laws of slavery.
0: Thank you. So with the Ibn Ezra, and this is a short excerpt, so I need to elaborate on what he's saying. He's addressing really the first question that we asked, which is about the sensitivity question. He says the following, that there's nothing more difficult for a human being than to be bonded to a fellow human. Bonded here doesn't mean like you have a good friend. That's not a difficult experience. Bonded in the sense of enslaved, being shackled by, being imprisoned by, or to another human being. So he says that is a very, very difficult human condition. For a a human being to be enslaved by, by, by another is tremendously difficult. He says, therefore, the Torah begins with the laws of slavery. And what are the laws of slavery? About emancipating one's slaves in the seventh year. That it's not a long-term thing. It's not a forever thing. It may be out of circumstance. And by the way, slavery was never forced. It was only something that essentially happened by choice because of a necessity. But it's still a difficult situation. And the Jews then could empathize with that challenge And therefore, the Torah wants to teach us and wants to teach these individuals who had been in the, had worn those shoes, who had been slaves, right? The Torah says that now as you experience your own freedom, make sure that you don't keep another human being enslaved like you were enslaved rather in the seventh year. In that objective seven years, it could be sooner than seven years. It could be the next year year number seven because, again, it's not your count. It's an objective count of seven years that keeps on cycling through. So every seven years in the cycle, your slave is going free. And that, he says, on the contrary, that's not triggering to the former slave. And that's not insensitive to the former slave. That's actually, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? That's actually soothing to the former slave, to the individual who, kn- who knows firsthand the horrors of slavery. To tell them that when a situation arises, that somebody else needs to put themselves in a vulnerable spot, that you and I are never allowed to take advantage of that. That there's always an outlet. There's always an escape hatch. There's always a way to get out that is not triggering. That's not, you know, negative. That's a positive. That's something that a former slave could truly appreciate. If anyone could appreciate this law, it would be the Jews who had just gotten out themselves of slavery. And therefore, the Ibn Ezra says, what is the first national communication after the Big Ten? I mean, the Big Ten Commandments are like, you know, the Big Ten. But what's the first national conversation? It's about freeing slaves. You were slaves. You know what it's like. Never have long-term slavery. It's not moral. It's not okay. It's not divinely sanctioned. You have to liberate the slaves if it's necessity for a few years, whatever. But after that, done. And that should, because of the empathy, that should resonate for the entire nation. Does that make sense, what I just said? Yes? Sort of? Yeah? Okay. That's the Ebenezer's opinion. That's his, uh, that's his uh, perspective on, on why this mitzvah is the first mitzvah. You know, that's, as a nation, that's the first commandment we got after the Big Ten. So we have two answers so far. Ramban says this mitzvah is big. It touches on exodus and it touches on creation. So therefore, it's the first one. Okay. The Ebenezer says it's the mitzvah that the people really needed to hear. Having been slaves, the first communication is never again. Never again are we going to do this to anybody else. We're not going to do this to each other. That's not how we roll. Again, if it's a necessity that somebody works full-time for a certain amount of time to pay off a debt, that's one thing, and that's a choice, but not, not long-term. And by the way, if you recall from, ver- from text one, from the original verses, if the slave is enjoying the experience and says, I want to stay. Okay, fine, but until the objective 50th year, and then, and then it's for sure done, even if, you, even if the slave wants to. Because there's no long-term or forever status to, to slavery in Judaism. And this resonated, you know, this, this really resonated within the heart and soul of, uh, of, of those people. That's the second approach. Approach number three. Again, we have four approaches total, including the Hasidic mystical approach. This is the third classic opinion, which takes a completely different approach. Okay, and I need to introduce this before we get into it. Okay, this is an interesting, interesting thing. Um, The Ten Commandments. Last week, right? We talked about Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments are 10 out of 613 commandments in total. So they are just 10 out of a much larger number of commandments found in the Torah. Yet, these are the Ten Commandments. What makes them the Ten Commandments? Why are they any, any more special than the other 603? Now I know what you're thinking. It's special because God communicated them to us at Sinai. Fine, but why these 10? Why these 10? Here's one perspective on it, and it's gonna tie back into our conversation, but give me a moment to, div- to put all the pieces, to lay them out and then draw, draw, uh, draw the connections. So give me a second. Why are they the Ten Commandments? So here's something fascinating. Commentaries point out, and I may have mentioned this last, I don't remember if I did in Torah studies, but I did in another class, maybe DPP. I definitely mentioned this sometime last week, that the Ten Commandments are not just individual mitzvot, they are categories of mitzvot that contain a bunch of other commandments. I'm going to say that one more time. Each of the Ten Commandments is not just an individual one mitzvah, it's actually a larger category that contains many of the other mitzvot inside, which means that you can find, sorry, you can fit all of the other 603 commandments in one of those 10 categories. Does that make sense what I just said? All of the other mitzvot of the Torah, aside from the 10 commandments, can Fit into one of the categories of the Ten Commandments. The Abarbanel. The Abarbanel. You know the song that was composed about the Abarbanel? Aba, ba, 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 Aba, ba, 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 Okay, the Abarbanel he has an incredible take on this mitzvah that opens up our Torah portion. He says right after we got the Ten Commandments, God followed up with Moses to tell us the subcategories. You hear what I just said? Right after we got the categories, immediately in Mishpatim, our Torah portion, we have a follow-up with... The details that go into the categories, and he says, if you look at Mishpatim, our Torah portion, it's got all of the mitzvot follow a pattern of the five. Sorry, the second half of the Ten Commandments, two tablets, right? The second tablet, commandment six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Those five commandments: Do not kill do not commit adultery, do not steal, um, do not uh, bear false testimony, and do not covet, right? Those five, again, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false testimony, and do not covet. Those five mitzvot commandments, sorry, of the Ten Commandments, again, are general categories, and the specifics... Of what's included in those categories are what our Torah portion lays out. And what's the first mitzvah? What's the first mitzvah? About not harming slaves. About not keeping slaves long term. About releasing slaves in the seventh year. Right? It's about compassion toward those that are working for you In quote, slavery, it's not treating them as a slave, but having compassion. And you know what the message is? We're going to read this inside. You know what the message is? That slavery, without Torah's laws, without this embedded emancipation, you know what it's like? Murder. Slavery, without emancipation, like what the Egyptians did to us, that slavery is tantamount to commandment number six. And the Yibar Banal continues to trace all of the opening mitzvot of this week's Torah portion are the subcategories of murder. And then the next few mitzvot in our Torah portion are the subcategory of theft. And then the next ones are the subcategory of adultery, etc. He goes through all of them and he explains how these are subcategories of the larger categories. But what's the first mitzvah? Slavery. What's slavery? It is within the category of Murder, in other words, personal harm, harming another human being. Because what is murder? Murder is harming someone else's, someone else physically. Well, what's slavery without emancipation? What is slavery? It's harming someone physically. Let's read this inside. I'm going to share my screen with you. I'm going to read this text myself. Uh, text 8. God gave his nation ten brief commandments. But since they were unable to hear the subsets of these commandments directly from God, God had to instruct Moses to teach them these laws, which are clear, clear subsets of the Ten Commandments. He therefore opened, And these are the laws that you shall place before them the word and. And. And these are the laws. And implies that these laws are a continuation of the Ten Commandments because they are included in those commandments. A wise person knows that all these laws and more are contained in the Ten Commandments. However, God illustrated his point with these laws and left the wise person to infer that the same applies to all the laws that the Torah would eventually elucidate. Just as it's clear that the opening mitzvot of our Torah portion are subcategories of the Ten Commandments, so too as Torah continues to roll out all of the other mitzvot throughout the five books of Moses, they are all subcategories of the original Ten Commandments. And to, to to bring this to life, I have a chart here on page 85. Take a look at the chart. The first commandment, sorry, the first category commandment is murder. And here are the opening mitzvot of our Torah portion, the prohibition against slavery or against Slavery needing emancipation, because slavery is akin to a living death. Injuring a parent, the prohibition against injuring a parent, which is, again, bodily harm. Cursing a parent, which is, again, murder with words. Kidnapping, killing a slave, ox-goring a person. These are the opening one, two, three, four, five, six. These are the opening six mitzvot of our Torah portion, and they seem all over the place. One is about slavery, and one is about parents, and one is about kidnapping, and one is about an ox, your ox killing another person, God forbid. Random laws, and Abarbanel says random, I think not. They are all subcategories of murder because what is the prohibition against murder? It's about harming someone else's body. It's about harming somebody else's person, harming them as a human being. You can harm them through slavery. You can harm by injuring a parent. You can harm by cursing someone with words. You can harm by kidnapping. You can harm by killing a slave. You can harm by your property, your ox harming a person. These are all forms of bodily harm and injury and all fall into the subset of murder. And that's how he explains the opening verses, the opening mitzvot of our Torah portion, which explains why the Torah portion opens with slavery because slavery falls under this category. But, once again, are we fully satisfied with this answer of abarbanel? Benel? Yes or no? Does a Benel, let me ask you, does a Benel explain why slavery is the first or why it's amongst the first? Are you with me in the distinction? Babinell just explains why this is a subset of murder, which is the first general category that the Torah chooses, that God chooses to to drop in on. But it doesn't explain specifically why slavery is the first of those six. Why couldn't it be the second or the third or the fourth or the fifth or the sixth? So therefore, we have classic answers, three of these classic answers, but each of them still leaves us wanting for more. And now we're going to get into the more. You wanted more? Well, I just told you you did. But now that you want more, because I'm sure you're all agreeing, because no one's saying anything to, to disagree, especially because I have you all muted, so therefore we are all going to, we, therefore we are going to jump into a deeper perspective. Right? And what is the deeper perspective? Let's roll. We just, this is the mystical Hasidic approach, and you'll hear the, you, you'll hear the language, and it'll, it'll sound familiar as far as a different Totally different way of looking at the world in Torah. Let's do this. We just came from Sinai. We just got the mitzvot. And now the question is not will we do them or not. That's not the question. Of course we're going to do them. The question is, what do they mean to us? What do they mean to you? What do they mean to, uh, to, to me? Let me explain what I mean by what does it mean. Ah, What I mean is, is it something we do? In our spare time? Is it something we do on the side? Is it something we do in addition to our identity? In other words, I am me. I have my hobbies. I have my job. I have my family. In addition, on occasion, I also do these rituals and study this book and do these things and whatever on the side. It's one of the things that I do. But as far as who I am, I am a human being. Otherwise, I am, I am a man, I'm a human being that, that has all these things. Plus, I do these Jewish things. Is that what Judaism is? That's one model. But here's another model. And at Dina Malka, you'll recognize this because we spoke about this either last week or the week before. Judaism, that, that would be Judaism as a religion. Judaism as a religion is, you know, it's, it tells me certain things that I should do in addition to who I am. But then there's another perspective. Judaism is not just uh, a hobby on the side or something that we do when we go to shul or something that we do when we pray or when we do a mitzvah. No, 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 no. Judaism is what we live and breathe. Judaism, like Calvin Klein once said, is an obsession, right? Was obsession the fragrance by Calvin Klein? I don't remember. Yeah, okay, fine. All right, I, I... it's, anyway, sorry for checking in on my uh, reference here, but sometimes I need, I need the extra assist. So here's the point. Is it yes. a hobby? Thank you. Is it a hobby? Is it something that we do in addition to who we are? Or is it our identity? Is it an obsession? You probably know where I'm going with this. Judaism Torah is not meant to be, it's not meant to, sorry, it's not meant to be an aside from who we are. It's not meant to be in addition to who we are. It's meant to be who we are. So that Torah values don't just come up once a day, twice a day, on the weekends, but we're constantly living with the values of Torah even in areas that look very that look very mundane and, and normal and usual. One second. Even in areas that look very mundane. When we're Pumping gas into our car. Is that a disconnected moment? Is that a mundane moment? Or is that an opportunity to also, on some level, I'll let you figure out how to do this, but on some level also, to connect with God and to be a Jew, to be a Yid. Right? When we, go, when we eat a meal, is it, well, I'm eating now, and then later on, maybe I'll do a mitzvah thing about God. Or is the meal also a time to think about God? You know the answer, right? Judaism is not meant to sit on the shelf somewhere. It's not meant for the weekends. It's not meant for mornings and evenings. Judaism is meant to fill our lives. And this is the opening mitzvah of the Torah. God says to us, I just gave you Torah at Sinai. And I want you to be subjugated to Torah in a good way. I want you to be all in to Torah. I want you to be all in your entire identity to the point, listen to this, to the point that you have no space. You have no space left to be enslaved to another human being. You need to be, one second, you need to be all in on Judaism, on Torah, Mitzvot, all in to the point that you don't have the time or the energy to be a slave to the man you can be, you're running, you're enslaved to this guy, to that person. Are you kidding me? Who has the time? Yeah, you're doing some work for someone? Fine. That's your side gig. The main gig is with God. And so it's not about, it's not a numbers game. It's not about hours of the day. It's a mindset. Where are you? Where where are you? Who? What's your identity? It's not you. It's me, right? It's what's my identity? Is my identity the job? Is my identity the boss? Is my identity Hollywood? Is my identity Wall Street? Is my identity Tesla? What's my identity? Or is my identity Hakadosh Baruch Hu, the Ebecher, God Almighty? And after Sinai, God says there is no. Longer slavery. Yeah, you might work for six years, whatever, that will never be your identity. And why won't it be your identity? Because in your seven, you are not no longer there. So even when you're there, that's not your identity. Never becomes who you are because who you are is a yid, is a Jew. Who you are is someone who is God's person. You're on the God squad, baby. You have no time for any mod squad, you're on the God squad. And that's why, gonna answer, drop some answers now for the questions we asked, that is why, even though the Jews were told in Egypt to emancipate their slaves at such point, whenever that would happen, that was a human rights issue. Your human rights are being your human rights are being violated, never do that again. After Sinai, it's not about human rights anymore. Different conversation. We heard the, 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 the story about human rights and freedom and emancipation. That we got in Egypt already. What are we getting now in Mishpatim and our Torah portion? Different message. It's not about human rights. It's about divine identities. God says, you never are allowed to own a slave. Yeah, they might work for you for six years. You don't own someone because they can't be owned by you because they're already... Owned by God in a good way, right? That person is already. That person is already responsible to God. And there's no time, there's no time and there's no space to be subjugated to the man to another human being. That's the message of our opening of, of our Torah portion. Let's take a look. Let's take a look. Do we have a text here? Um Uh, one second. Yeah, Ray, go ahead.
2: Um, we heard that. Where are you? Back in creation. Yeah. What? How do you? How do you relate one to the other or not?
0: I'm not going to relate it to right Right. now because at Sinai there was a different call. Ayeka, where are you? Is to Adam in the Garden of Eden after the sin, which could have a different context, different connotation. What I'm trying to explain tonight is that when God revealed himself at Sinai, if you and I were standing there, there's two ways you could hear that message. All right, God wants me, in addition to all my other stuff, to to check off all these boxes, to have a checklist of uh, responsibilities that I need to do every single day. Cool, I'll do that, God. No problem. You want it, I'll do it. That's one approach. The other approach is God has given me a new identity. I have a new reality, I have a new purpose, I have a new identity. This is the new me. The new me is someone who's living a divine life, someone who's living in service of God, someone who's living with divine purpose and a divine mission, and that is my totality. And so, yeah, I may also work for someone, I may also have a job, a day job, or whatever it is, and that may take a lot of time and a lot of energy and some brain space as well. That may, but that's not who I am. And the Torah specifies that with the law of slavery. The first thing after Sinai is you are never enslaved to human work. You are never enslaved to a human being. You are never subjugated to culture, society. You're nev- that's not who you are. Who are you? You are a person with a divine soul that has a divine mission and a divine responsibility. And you have a divine calling. And you are so much greater than all of that other stuff, all of those other distractions. This is the message of the opening of our parasha, the opening of our Torah portion. What better message to start off with right after Sinai is the message of identity. Now that you got the Torah, kind of like the Super Bowl ad, remember the old ads? I don't know if they still do it, right? Um, I'm going to date myself now. Um, What was his name on the 49ers? What was that quarterback? Uh, uh, um, Joe Joe Montana. Joe Montana. Thank you. Yeah. Joe Montana, you just won the Super Bowl. What are you going to do next? I'm going to Disney, right? That's the question after Sinai. You just got the Torah. What are you going to do next? What am I going to do next? I'm going to serve God. And that means I'm not serving another human being. I don't have time. I don't have space. I don't have the energy. Not going to happen. I may work, but I'm not serving because serving is only for God. That is my identity. And so every seven years, the etch shakes out and everything settles and we, it's clear and realized that no, no one owns anybody else. No one can own because we are all in service of God. And so in conclusion, as we stand here in 2020 and we reflect on the opening mitzvah of the Torah, the mitzvah of slavery, but it's not about having a slave, it's about emancipating slavery. Let us embrace this mission and let us emancipate all of those shackles that we might sometimes believe in. All of those fetters, all of those knots that we sometimes tie ourselves in, and all of those things that we anchor ourselves to that are not higher, that are lower, let us take this opportunity. Parshas Meshbatim, my bar mitzvah portion. Let's take this opportunity to undo the knots, to unanchor, or whatever it is the anchor, to unshackle the fetters, and to let ourselves free. Free not from all responsibility, but free from serving that which ought not be served. Free to live our higher purpose and our higher meaning in service of God and making this world the place that it can be. I thank you for joining me tonight. Let's embrace the mission. Let's let ourselves go free and let us and let us, embrace the higher mission of our lives. Thank you and I wish you all in Erev tova. good evening. May this message resonate for all of us and inspire all of us in our lives. Thank you. All right. Now, now, now I'm on to take questions, comments. Stay on if you'd like, and, uh, and you can ask away. A few things to mention. A few things to mention, and that is we have some very important upcoming events. I mentioned the jewelry workshop. Gorgeous. Purim theme, Jewish holiday theme jewelry. Check it out, in We have um, a brand new series, the Kabbalah of the future, some future ideas, mystical ideas that we're going to be looking at that is absolutely incredible. So join me for that. Um, we have an art workshop, painting at home workshop that's about to go up, hopefully in the next few days. And then, of course, we have a very special event with David's mom. Um, who is a survivor and an author and a speaker? She's going to share her experiences um, with us on March fourteenth. Please join us for that called an event called Faith and Fortitude. All right, let's jump in. Questions and answers, or questions, and hopefully I'll be able to respond. Richard.
3: Really, uh, this is a, to me, this is the elephant in the room, and it's a, another class that I don't think can answer right now. But that pertains to Jews only too having Jewish slaves. What about uh, the... To me, it's never talked about non-Jewish slaves. There's a difference in why we want to own anyone. So I, I know it's a, it's a long discussion, but... It's, I, not,
0: I, I it's, not, it's not actually so long. It's not so long, and it's not taboo, and it's not an elephant in the room. The commentaries discuss it, and I, I'm, I'm happy to share it with you, and it makes a lot of sense. The commentaries tell us that the way the ancient civilizations held slaves was absolutely horrific. If you and I think that slavery from 150 years ago or whatever was brutal, how about slavery from 3,000 years ago, 3,500 years ago? Can you imagine what that was like? Can you imagine? I can't imagine. But it was absolutely horrendous and horrific. And the, the, our sages tell us that slaves, uh, when, Judaism has a specific, specific laws regarding slaves. And that is, you have to treat the slave like a member of your family. You have to give the slave to eat what you eat. You can't not subpar food. Sleep on a bed like your bed. If you have only one pillow, you have to give it to your slave. Basically, teaches us how to treat another human being with respect and dignity, even if they work for you full time. That's what a slave is. And so, the commentaries point out that slaves would run away, would run away from other countries, neighboring countries, to, to escape, to go where? To go where? To go to Israel and become a slave for the Jewish people. And they would beg, knocking on the doors, take me in as your slave and harbor me. Torah did not demand, right? Did not demand that we should then When settling, because when the owner of that slave would come to the Jew and say, you got my slave, and the Jew would then have to pay off the owner. You want to ask, if we're asking a question, let's think about the practical scenario, right? The owner would come to the Jew and say, you got my slave, and the Jew would shell out money. Would the Torah demand that a Jew spend the money? and not get something in return, and have to emancipate and liberate? That's already next level. The Torah doesn't demand that. Now, the Torah expectation is that we get there on our own. But does the Torah mandate it? No. Does that make sense? The Jews would not buy slaves from the other nations. It would be a situation where the slave was running away, and then a deal was made for the betterment of the slave's life. So Torah does not say that it's a tzedakah fund, that you have to shell out money to to save the world and and then emancipate everybody. Why? Although that's an ideal, that's not an obligation. I think we have to differentiate between a mitzvah and a good deed. A mitzvah is not a good deed. A mitzvah is an obligation, a binding obligation. There's no binding obligation, right, to free, to ransom and pay the ransom and free everybody in the world. Right? For our own people, there is a mitzvah. There's an obligation. But it's not an obligation for the whole world. Is it a good deed? Absolutely. Should it be done? Sure. Is it an obligation? Not on that level. Does what I'm saying make sense? In
3: fact, if it, yeah, yeah, if in fact they, they retained the slave, fine. was it customary to buy him, to sell out the money to, to,
0: the, to the original owner? Yes. Was that custom? Yes. So
3: that's, that's not a good deed.
0: No, 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 no. It's not a good deed. It's business. They, okay. they, would, they would demand the slave back. Yes. How would you save the slave? So he would ransom, he would ransom the slave. I mean, the the, the the slave would run away. The owner would find out where the slave is, and the Jew would have to, the owner would have to pay the the owner, the, the, the sorry, the Jew would have to pay the owner. Okay, yeah. okay. that's the way it worked. And so the question is, does the Torah demand that you come up with the money, pay the money, and then free the slave? Is that an obligation? It's not an obligation. I need to share with you now what Jonathan Sa- Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, of blessed memory, wrote. Rabbi Sachs writes that the Torah does not always tell us the end game. The Torah often provides for us a path for us to get the values and get there on our own. One such example is with regard to slavery. The Torah doesn't abolish slavery right then and there. Because perhaps it wasn't feasible at that point in time based on societal structures to do so. But you know what the Torah does say? The Torah tells us that human beings are created in the image of God. The Torah tells us that every human life is valuable. The Torah tells us that slavery is wrong and slavery is abhorrent. The Torah tells us about the value of, uh, of paying, like I said before, paying the ransom or, or paying off owners of slaves when they are in difficult uh, situations and positions. The Torah tells us about Jewish slaves, about emancipating them every seven years. You know what the message is? The message is, ultimately, that we should come to a place to realize what God really wants. You know what that is? No slaves. No slaves. This is the long march to freedom. Like Nelson Mandela wrote a book called The Long March to Freedom. This is the long march. You know, God has time. God has time. God is uh, is eternal. And so God knows that we're not going to get it right right away, but that if given the right information, slowly, slowly humankind will get there. And... In 2021, more than ever before in human history, more people on planet Earth get it. More people get it. Not everybody gets it. Not everybody gets it. But more people than ever get this idea. And where are these seeds planted? In Torah. And so everyone asks, Torah sanctioning slaves. That's one way to look at it. Or you can say Torah is planting the seeds to get us on board with this concept of being abhorred, finding it abhorrent to have slaves, that we should, on our own, abolish slavery. That's the other way to look at it. And that's what, uh, what uh, Rabbi Sachs shares. All right, questions, comments?
4: This is Yaakov. Hey, Yaakov. I'm sorry I, don't have, sorry, I don't have video. Can you hear me? I can hear you, yeah. Yeah, so um, it's very apropos for for this time because um, you know we think of slavery as uh, something that happened in, in the past and it's gone now. Um, there, uh, with with all the human trafficking going on and child slavery, um, there is more humans in slavery right now than ever in the history of the earth. Wow! So I was wondering, since you know, child trafficking is probably the most tragic and um, and heart wrenching and Destroys lives. You know, what do we as Jews have as responsibility to participate in these social issues?
0: I mean, I I don't I don't know if there's a question. I, I mean, as as a human being, um, as a moral human being, we have an absolute obligation to do everything in our power to end to end to end that horror. Absolutely, I, I don't think it's a unique Jewish obligation although certainly it's, it's, it's within the umbrella of Jewish values and the very values of the beginning of this week's Torah portion. But I would say it's a universal human obligation, um, part of uh, law and order and, and, and justice and, and, and not abusing each other, that, that, that every human being do whatever we can to stop it. I don't, there's no question. There's absolutely no question about it. It's, it's horrific. And again, I, I'm going to say this again probably for the third or fourth or maybe fifth time. When Jewish, when the parasha begins, the Torah portion begins by talking about a Jewish slave for six years, that is not what we are talking about when we talk about slavery. When, it, when you and I think about slavery or human trafficking, that is not at all in the same ballpark. It is not in the same planet as what the Torah is talking about. It's not in the same universe. Torah is talking about a person who is a live-in, working in your home, who has a place to sleep in your home, who's working not 24-7, they're obviously sleeping, they're working and you're not giving them menial activities, you're not giving them purposeless uh, activities, you're giving them work around the house and they have a responsibility and you treat them like a mensch. The moment a hand is lifted, this week's Torah portion says, the moment a slave is touched, They're free. It's not in the same league as kidnapping and human trafficking, any of that. It's not the same conversation. And for us to conflate the two is is twisting Torah, it's perverting Torah, and it's not at all. So your question is, what about human trafficking? What do we say about that? You don't have to look to Mishpatim for that. It's not in our Torah portion even. Our Torah portion talk about when you're treating a slave wonderfully like a member of the family, you still say, my fellow, you got to serve God and, and out of my house, you got to build a home for God instead of working for me 24-7, so to speak. That's the message of our Torah portion. Human trafficking is abhorrent and it has to be stopped. It's not limited to this Torah portion. That's a universal human value, Torah value across the board. I hope that makes sense. But for us to think that... Mm-hmm. Judaism originally sanctioned it, but then said only for six years. Yeah, that is not at all. You have a question, Ellie? Yeah. What if,
2: what if um, 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 someone steals something and the person who got stolen from um, doesn't have anything that the slave could do?
0: Ah. Well, then you got to find something. I don't know. It's a good question. I was asking, what if you have no work for the slave to do, the person to do? All right. I don't know. Whatever. So they can they can uh, help you. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure. It's a good question. It's a good question. There's always something to do, though. All right. You can take
2: What socks together? So there you go. The <laughs> but
0: by the way, it has to be. The Torah says it's a biblical prohibition to give this to give this person. I hate. See the the. the you know what the problem is? Language. The translation is slave. And we say, oh, slave, slave is slave. That's where the that's where the problem begins and ends. If we had a different word, then we wouldn't, we wouldn't, we wouldn't confuse the two. I keep on saying the words.
1: St- yeah. Sure. Maybe a
0: butler. Why not a butler? A live-in butler. Why not? A live-in butler. Treated nicely. Huh?
1: <laughs> first mate.
0: <laughs> a first mate?
1: First.
0: Yeah. Yeah, why not? First mate. Yeah. A slave evokes all sorts of parallels that are not at all in the ballpark. Not at all. Whether Jewish or not Jewish. And that's what I was saying before. If a non Jewish slave, the original slave, comes to a Jewish family, they're no longer a slave. They're a butler now. That's what I was saying before. It's a different reality. Judaism never allows for human abuses. Never. Under no umbrella is that allowed. Not for a second, let alone six years. Never. Not for a second. So what are we talking about? One second, one second, one second. So what are we talking about? So what are we talking about? We're talking not about slavery. We're talking about something else that that is translated, unfortunately, as slavery. It's a different thing, though. So what's the point? The point is, yes, yes, yes. Human trafficking has to be stopped. It's a human moral obligation. It has to be stopped. Our Torah portion is telling us, on top of all that, other messages like we spoke about, a message of purpose, and how we live our lives, and how we view our own commitments to God. But, but, but slavery and human trafficking, it's off the table. Of course we have to stop that. All right. Questions, comments? Just ten, two seconds. So you, are you saying in essence that when Adnan who comes, begs to be let in, he is treated the same as a Jewish slave. Yes, so much- yes. Yes. yes, yes. Oh, I, I meant to say this before. I, I mentioned it, but I, that, I, I, let me circle back to this. The Torah prohibits giving a slave, giving, again, using the word, giving this individual Whatever. work that has no utility. Like you can't say, make me a cup of tea when you don't really need it. That's considered to be abuse. Making tea when you don't need it is abuse. That's, that's the standard. That's the standard. I mean, our our bosses in a company held to such a standard? Think about it. The Torah, that's the standard. You can't give even an easy task that's not needed to, to this person. That is the level of dignity and respect. And you know what? No one else knows. You can say, I'll, I'll, you can pretend that you really wanted it, but you changed your mind and you, never, and you didn't drink it. You know, you know if you need it or not. You know why you said it. You know what your agenda is. And the Torah says, don't do that. Don't do that, it's wrong. Not, got physical abuse is wrong. Making tea is wrong if you don't need it. So
3: it's, a you never dif- need it's a different thing.
0: You never, need tea. never need tea. I need tea sometimes.
3: Are they, are they liberated after six years? A non-Jewish slave? What's,
0: what's, what's no, like no, no there's, no. there's no obligation. There's no obligation to liberate. Should it be done? Sure. Should it be done day one? Sure. Why not? Yeah. But you're giving this person a better life, number one. And number two, it's recommended, but it's not obligated. Because a mitzvah is not just a good deed. A mitzvah in the Torah is an obligation. That's the difference. There's a standard. There's there's a different standard of what a mitzvah is. mitzvah is an obligation. So do you have an obligation to not only pay for this person and then then free? Again, (laughs) Ein L'dav R'saif. There's no end to that. You understand what, 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 what the extent of this mitzvah would be? It would be making sure that every human being, right, a Jewish obligation to free every human being on planet Earth, that it's a specific Jewish obligation to do so. The Torah does not hold us to that standard. The Torah says, in your family, yes, but in the whole world, yes, everybody should do it, but it's not a specific Jewish obligation to do that.
3: You've answered my question. Thank you. Pleasure.
0: All right.
4: Follow-up? Question, Rob?
0: Yes. Quickly, quickly, because i got to jump off.
4: Okay, quick. So I agree 100% that the Torah is bringing humanity from abhorrent behavior to pure spiritual viewpoint uh, orientation. So, in um, that, uh, it is absolutely 100% going, uh, bringing us from inhumane treatment of slaves to humane treatment of slaves to non-slavery. Um, and since it also took us from, um, okay, no child sacrifices, that's bad. But try not to do that anymore to, okay, we're going to do animal sacrifices now, to now we're not sacrificing animals because we don't have a temple, we're making uh, time sacrifices in prayer. Um, will we ever go back to animal sacrifices because it seems like we're becoming more spiritual in the messianic era? Why would we need to sacrifice the animal part of our soul if, it's, if we've already been there, done that?
0: Excellent question. we got to save that for another class. Today is not about animal sacrifices, and we are out of time. All right, it's a good question. That's a part of it. There's a, there's a dispute amongst the commentaries about when Mashiach comes about animal sacrifices. It's a whole topic. Can't do it justice now on one foot. So we're going to save it for another time. Folks, thank you for joining. It's, uh, it's, been, it's been an amazing experience for me. I hope you've enjoyed it as well. Lila Tov, have a good night. And let's all remember the main point of tonight's class, which is it's a commitment. It's a lifestyle. And let us find meaning in, in our divine service. Have a good night, everybody. Take care.